five, four, three, two, one. Hello, my name's Ewan McGregor, and welcome to the Criterion Collection Special Edition of Train Spotting. On this track, you will hear commentary by director Danny Boyle, producer Andrew McDonald, screenwriter John Hodge, and myself. These interviews were recorded in London during the winter of 1996. Choose life. Hello, I'm John Hodge. I uh, adapted the book, wrote the screenplay. I like the opening, I must say. I was quite pleased with the way it worked out. Putting the voice, this choose speech at the beginning, I think it worked quite well. It um, pops off about halfway through Irvin Welsh's book, but it does seem to outline the main character's credo. You know, he just uh, looks at society and everything that there is, you know, conventionally on offer, and he just rejects it rather viciously. Hello, my name's uh, Andrew McDonald and I produced the film. The football team here, that's Carlton Athletic football team, who, who really helped get the film onto celluloid from, you know, all the ideas that are written in Irvin's book and in John's script. These people really had lived as, as heroin addicts and also lived proper lives as, as human beings and without them we never would have been able to do it. And they, you know, they're cut into the profits of the film and are going to make some money now. Pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish, fucked up brats that you've spawned to replace yourselves. Choose your future, choose life. Well, I think we have to pay tribute to the editor here because this is a very difficult sequence to put together because what he had to do obviously was cut uh, all these different scenes, trying to introduce the different characters together with the rhythm of the voiceover and the rhythm of the Iggy Pop track. Uh, and uh, I think he did it actually, I think it works. I'm Danny Boyle and I directed Transporting. The idea of the opening of the film, which we were absolutely adamant about, was that the film should explode into life. Because what the problem you've got with a drug movie is that people are expecting and you can get lured into this depressive, kind of Christiana F type approach, you know? Or it's a moralistic, um, kind of um, objective view of it. And we wanted the film to be a completely subjective experience like the book is. So there's none of this separation of you from the, from the people who are the victims or the perpetrators of drug culture. The speech, that speech was originally in the middle of the film. And at one of the points in the drafts, John suddenly moved it forward to the beginning of the film. And again, the film, it's one of those moments where you can feel the film kick into life at script stage. One of the lovely things about this set, this room or series of rooms, is that we always had this idea that Mother Superiors was like a home from home, a really cosy place. And the more we shot in it, the more scenes we shot in this particular set, the warmer and cosier it became, it felt. It was bizarre, because um, there's carpets covered needles and matches and shit everywhere and things hanging off the walls, but the scenes in this place became really warm and friendly and sexy, like this scene here. Take the best orgasm you ever had, multiply it by a thousand and you're still nowhere near it. Beats any meat injection. That beats any fucking cock in the world. When you're on junk, you've only one worry, scoring. One of the things was, that was very difficult to do was the baby. Because what you have to do, of course, and you don't realise this when you just watch the film, is you have to, you have to find somebody who will give you their baby to play in the film 
a baby that's going to die and that's going to be surrounded by syringes and all this kind of thing. But, but of course, the baby, as babies do, looks incredibly healthy, of course. And we put all this kind of white makeup on it to make it look a bit iller like the rest of them, like it wasn't being fed properly or anything like that. But it's difficult because the babies, babies just look like really healthy babies unless they're very unfortunate ones. I think there's a thing in the book here about Sick Boy where he describes him as being like a kid on Christmas morning coming down and seeing the Christmas tree full of presents underneath. And it's such an inappropriate image for the traditional view of a, the drug user. But to, for an actor to, to tell him that, to remind him of that bit in the book as he plays that scene is wonderful inspiration, you know? We had this huge um, old uh, cigarette factory, very appropriate. Um, which used to house 5,000 people used to work in it, which was our sort of studio and back lot and everything, where we, we did almost 70% uh, of the filming, which was in Glasgow, because we made both Shallow Grave and Trainspring in Glasgow, because that's where the crew are. There's an excellent crew that also have started up working with uh, Bill Forsyth on his movies. We got involved in this project because the producer, Andrew MacDonald, uh, um, was given this book, which uh, at the time was uh, barely known at all. It was a real, a genuine cult novel. There were like 2,000 copies of it in the whole of Scotland. And he said, he said to John Hodge, the screenwriter and myself, that we should read it. And the book was just a phenomenal experience. One of those books you get about every 10 years that you just think, what have you been doing with your life, you know? And um, I, had to, uh, I had to write a note to Irving Welsh telling him that Andrew MacDonald and John Hodge were the best things to come out of Scotland since Kenny Dalgleish and Alex Ferguson. Um, as a, way of, as a way of persuading a football fan to trust his book to them. We called him Mother Superior on account of the length of his habit. Of course I'd have another shot. After all, I had work to do. Relinquishing Junk, Stage 1, Preparation. John Hodge. Well, we were quite uh, pleased with Ewan's work in Shallow Grave. <laughs> and uh, we kind of thought of him as as a interesting Renton because he can be kind of sort of charming and repulsive on screen at the same time. You know, he can do something that's, you know, n not admirable or is, uh, you know, despicable. And yet he can carry it off with a certain... Uh, persuasive charm which makes you want to go on watching which is a great combination you know the the other uh, comparison we always make you know not in terms of necessarily of acting style but just of that quality is sort of early michael kane say alfie i was given the script to read when we were doing some publicity in america for uh, shallow grave and so uh, i read it and of course felt that I, if any part i'd ever played was important and this was even more so and uh then after a shaky week, was was told that they'd allow me to do it, and then read the novel, of course, which was the same emotional blast as it was for everyone else. This was typical of Mikey Forrester. What the fuck are these? Under the so this guy's Mikey Forrester in the story, but he's also Urban Welsh, who wrote the novel in reality. And an interesting character who made us laugh a lot. Danny Boyle. What happens, tends to happen in the industry, in television and film, is that the writer 
whose imagination this all comes from originally, becomes excluded. You know, you turn up on sets and the writer turns up and you get these people staring at the writer saying, what are you doing here? As though, you know, they don't belong there. And that's an important thing to us, is to keep the writer involved. I'm feeling better now, though, eh? Oh, aye, for all the good they've done me, I might as well have stuck them up my ass. Andrew MacDonald. Typical Danny Boyle shot. Yeah. You see, trying to make, making something just which is real. Yeah. Not real. You know, that's, a lot of people love that shot in front of that block of flats. Real Glasgow punters. See, one of the problems with adapting is that this is a great sequence in Irvin's book that's going through the betting shop and everything. It's incredibly detailed and evocative just about all the characters who are in it. But when, you realise that once you start adapting, if you try to put all that detail in, you just, it's a half-hour scene. And uh, you've got a lot, you know, we wanted to make a 90-minute picture. And so you end up, when you're adapting, just, it's, um, just trying to capture the essence. And that's all, just the salient points. And then trying to make a, a film. So a lot of things get missed out. In the novel, of course, this, this, this section doesn't happen. What you get is this amazing description of his mind as he sits there in this terrible toilet. And um, what John managed to come up with was a way, a visual way, of actually moving, moving the film on and also making the film its own thing rather than actually just being a, a copy of the book, which is also important to us, that we felt we wanted to capture the spirit of the book but not just repeat the book. That shot we just had of me looking through my thighs down the toilet was the closest moment I've ever had with a cinematographer in my life, probably for him too with an actor. This is the most talked about scene I've ever done in a film, I think. It's a, in interviews and things, this is the most frequent question I get. Tell me about the toilet scene, so I'm not going to tell you about it. One of the interesting things about it, of course, is that it does fulfil two elements of their life, one of which is the degradation that they're prepared to go through. And this horrible toilet is nothing compared to the stories that Carlton Athletic told us. But it also allows you to see some of the beauty that they find eventually in their search. And that's unacceptable, but it's also true, and you have to reflect that as well. Andrew MacDonald. A lot of critics wrote about how wonderful it was to, to start in this ball of shit and then go through into lo lovely clear water. Now, the way that was written and the way we'd always envisaged it, it wasn't going to be lovely. It was going to be loads of turds floating in it. But the swimming pool we got in Glasgow, where we made the underwater scene, did the underwater scene, wouldn't let us put it anything in the water. It was, we'd have to drain it, and it was going to cost a fortune. So that was just the way it ended up. And of course, now people think it's all... Uh, Some sort of meta metaphor for finding glorious salvation in the midst of horror. Oh. He can swim like a fish. McGregor can do absolutely everything. <laughs> He's one of those guys that you, do, you show him how to do it, and then he can just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Actually, it's just a cheap way to get out of the scene. You know, because the alternative, I got to that point in the toilet, and uh, he has to go out of the betting shop somehow. Now, you could have him walking back out through the betting shop with his suppositories, etc. but that's, frankly, rather tedious, whereas man just disappears down the toilet is quicker and, uh, I think, a little bit more entertaining. Now, this scene was supposed to take place in a horrible bit of arid wasteland, but this is what happens. You write arid wasteland, and then it's like the hottest day in Glasgow for... 20 years, and director just insists on going to a beautiful, luscious park. It was quite arid when we looked at it. <laughs> Mid-February. <laughs>
um, this this sequence in the park was originally much longer. After this initial meeting of the guys, they, there was a long sequence where they unpacked the gun, the air gun they're going to use, and basically set themselves up for the day. And it was all meant to happen to the theme of Mission Impossible. But in fact, uh, Brian De Palma was already setting up Mission Impossible, and to get the rights on the Mission Impossible theme at that time <laughs> would have cost us about three times the total budget of the film. So um, that was dropped in the end, and... Um, we ended up making a straight cut from them arriving to them being in situ. Um, it's quite, a, in many ways, it's quite a crude medium compared to the sophistication and complexity of a, of a, of a, of a novel. Well, they were also both very drunk when they turned up for this day, for this day's shooting. They'd both been out on a binge the night before and they were in a terrible state. That's one of the reasons they look so... They leave no stone unturned actors in their quest for reality. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is that we'd done some of the... Uh, me going over the bonnet of the car stuff the day before, and I was aching from head to foot, which is why I look so awkward. In <laughs> fact, I've been kicked around again. One of the reasons that um, we do so little outside is that when you're working on, on, on small budgets, in order to make the budget seem bigger, in order to make the film look better, you have to make some, you have to make some quite bold decisions about exactly how you're going to spend the money. And we decided right from the beginning that we would spend it in studios we would build. Well, they're not studios, they're just old factories that we take over. Because location, it's just a conduit, a kind of dump for your money. Because everything is interfering all the time. People, humanity, dogs, aeroplanes, light changing. And you're just wasting time so much. Whereas you get in a studio, you can control it yourself. And once, and obviously, that out of that then comes a particular approach to using studio, where you can build specials, certain types of sets, and use the the visual medium that you're in more more than just more than just reality, more than just recreating reality. You can enhance it or distort it. For a vegetarian, Lance, you're a fucking evil shot. Without heroin, I attempted to lead a useful and fulfilling life as a good citizen. Danny Boyle. Yeah, Ewan Bremner played Renton in the, in the stage version, and we desperately wanted him to play Spud, and we felt very dubious about whether we should approach him because we felt he might feel insulted. But he, you know, his spirit, again, is um, tremendous, and he was, once we explained to him why we wanted to cast Ewan McGregor as Renton and him as Spud, he was totally up for it, you know, and wanted to do it. And this is, this is him. What you try and do is you, with an actor like this, is you try and work out a way in which you can just capture that, that quality, you know, it's, it's amazing. So we came up with this idea of the, the cutting so that it would actually, it would actually feel like you were, you were reproducing the way that his mind is jumping around because he's on, on speed for the interview. So that's what we, um, that, that's the way the, the scene emerged, really. I mean, it's his, uh, it's his work, um, amazing work, really. John Hodge. Uh, we saw the play of Trainspotting, or I saw it anyway, at a fairly early stage in the screenwriting process. And I thought, well, it's a good play, but they, they had taken a totally different approach. The play was a very uh, sort of straight uh, dramatization of the events described in the book, which worked very well in the intimate atmosphere of theater. Um, but one thing I mean, we all agreed upon was that uh, when you were making something for the cinema and to stand as a cinema film, we weren't just making a tribute to the book and that we wanted to make something with uh, that was uh, more appropriate to the cinematic medium and more appropriate to the cinematic audience, whereas theatre obviously goes for a very um, select few, basically. 
Well, the thing is, two of the most powerful scenes in the stage version uh, were scenes that Ian Bremner subsequently pay, plays in this film, um, because he was doing an amalgamation of a whole lot of parts, and he was playing the spud role and the Renton role. So, he, in effect, he was he was reprising some of his uh, theatre role anyway. But I think he he felt he was doing it, I don't know, with a different emphasis. But he's brilliant. The pleasure was mine, Mike. Spud had done well. I was proud of him. He fucked up good and proper. You had to hand it to Spud. This this scene uh, in the in the vault, in the pub was uh, revoiced using the same actors using you know, using Bobby Carlyle uh, just for the American release, but not with any actual change in in the dialogue. I don't know if it made any difference, really. It was just a little bit clearer. A little bit clearer. People, people I mean, people in London don't understand this. I, I mean, obviously, I understand every word of it. I don't think um, a lot of the actors here maybe understood what he was saying every time. <laughs> it's quite simple. In the, in the novel, it's quite simple, their relationship with Begby, is that it's... Um, it's more frightening not to be his friend than it is to be his friend, basically. Because he's such a psychopath. And this, I lo this scene where he's just telling the story about the pool is fantastic. I, I met some people in America who'd seen the film in its original state. And uh, because of his amazing acting, Robert Carlyle, they, they all said that speech with the glass, we didn't understand a word he said, but we knew exactly what he was talking about. I think that's brilliant. Amazing, amazing performance. He's very skinny. He is quite a threatening, scary guy because he does come originally from, you know, uh, a rough part of town in Glasgow. And he knows what it's like, these characters are like, and he knows that they weren't always, they're not always the biggest. We always thought of Begbie as being some big lout. And uh, Bobby just, you know, when it comes to playing that psycho part, he's done it a few times now, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of one of the reasons why this, you know, is so collectible now and everybody's buying it on video and it's, it's, it's actually quite pleasurable unless you've watched it 200 times to watch again is people, his character is just amazing. I find it very, very funny. The way he swears is amazing. You've got to, no matter, no matter what you do, you know, you talked about, we, we've talked about, um, you know, the trips into kind of a heightened reality or surrealism, like down the toilet. None of it matters, none of it works unless your actors are believable. And you've got to get the actors who will convince people. You know, everybody goes to the cinema, it doesn't matter what it costs, or if you don't believe the actor, it doesn't matter how inventive it is. The invention, you know, cleverness lasts for about, works for about five minutes and then you're just bored. It's, it's, it's some kind of common humanity that you recognise about yourself, bits about yourself or about your friends that you recognise in these actors. I mean, this film particularly is an example of that, that these actors like Bobby Carlyle, Ewan Bremner, Kevin McKidd, Johnny Lee Miller, and obviously McGregor can take you places you haven't been before and yet you feel you've been there, you know, and you're prepared to go there with them, really. That's why it works, I think, not because it's cool or anything like that, just because you believe them, you know, and they take you places you haven't, you, you don't dare to go sometimes. But one of the things that happened during the film is there was a huge marketing campaign for alcoholic lemonade, which was being introduced into Britain at the time. And to see these huge kind of beer 
companies spending all this money trying to get younger and younger people interested in alcohol in a country, Scotland, which is riddled with alcoholism and the destructiveness of alcohol. His legendary there, you know, makes you feel like, as he says in the book, you know, that actually this is, this is just something that people have made unacceptable compared to other forms of addiction, which, which riddle our society, you know? And Begbie's the prime example of that because he's as moralistic as you can get about drugs, doesn't want to have any part of it. He's absolutely adamant about opposing them and trying to stop his so-called friends getting involved with them. This is a homage to Clockwork Orange, obviously which was a big influence in the film. Kubrick's work, you know, the, his visual sense, his use of especially wide lenses was something that we borrowed or stole, depending on your uh, loyalty, um, uh, constantly. And we use a lens, particularly a lens, uh, which is a 10mm lens, a Zeiss lens, which normally, most lenses of that size make everything appear like distorted, very distorted, but this lens gives you a very true image. Of, of the actor's face, as well as actually distorting or appearing to distort the perspective as well. It was John's idea that, um, you know, normally you, you, you film, it's such a relief because you film scenes in discos and actors have to do this terrible thing where you turn the music down and they have to keep speaking as though the music's loud. But on this, of course, because we had this freedom, you could turn the music totally up so they couldn't even hear each other speak, let alone, you know, worry about the sound man and the microphone, you know? They could just scream at each other. And again, it frees you because it lets the actors play it for real, you know, like you do in a club where you're screaming in somebody's ear and you're nodding away because you think you know what they're saying and in fact, you can't hear a word of it. You're just going, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's very good dialogue. But the trouble is, you know, is it a way of getting Irvin's great words on screen, really? Because, uh, you know, just to have them spoken in a club, particularly in strong Scottish accents, we felt they would be lost. And the dialogue's taken, I think, from a different section in the book. This is a really nice scene because we're all there, all the, all the character, characters are there. And... Uh, but we're all kind of separated and it reflects what we were like really as a bunch of actors. Everybody was completely into it, bound by this great script that we were all working on. And there were no egos on set, and yet everyone was doing their own, everyone was concentrating their own, on, on their own thing, but all pulling together um, when it came down to doing the work. It was quite nice because it's the same as a scene, really. But talking about the cast, I've never done a film where I felt that the whole, everybody, not one, everybody in the film was, there was an incredible kind of unity amongst us. And the novel it was based on, there was no, everybody was 100% into it. And as a result, it was so easy. Everyone was so easy. When we shot the scenes, it was, it was an ease because everyone, everyone knew exactly what we were all up to. We were very lucky to get this girl, uh, Kelly MacDonald, because we, want, we didn't want, we wanted somebody who was completely new because we had to kind of, um, she had to portray this double thing of looking like a sophisticated young woman and yet turns out to be a schoolgirl. And so we advertised in the clubs around uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow and said, you know, do you want to be the new Kate Moss or Patricia Arquette? And we got all these girls to come in and we had this fabulous day where 900 girls came into this room. <laughs> we got to interview them all. And she was the one, but it's quite interesting, as soon as she sat down, even before she opened her mouth, 
you could you just knew it was her really i don't know why it was funny that and we went through the whole process and she she eventually got the part and she was amazing really because um this was a, the first time she'd ever acted in any capacity at all when we screened this film in New York for the first time in front of a sort of test audience, they were asked to fill in a form saying what they thought about the film. There's one section, Did you, is there anything you find confusing about the film? And the, there was one person who commented, the volcano bar is in Glasgow, not Edinburgh. <laughs> Which is true, and uh, I can see how that would confuse someone. I mean, one of the things about the book is that the women get, don't get much of a look in, and we thought we wanted to try and... Um, increase her, her part, Diane's part in the in the film, and we shot a lot more scenes, especially late on in the film, where her role, you know, is expanded from the book, and we continue her relationship with Renton more. It's a very, it is a very male world, and it was really just it's naivety on our part, you know, or a kind of stupid kind of correctness feeling that we have to represent women in it that actually doesn't survive the the process of whittling down the film at the end. Trainspotting very much a book about a bunch of guys and it ends up as being a film about a bunch of guys. I mean, in Irvin's book, there are some chapters which he devotes to female characters, peripheral female characters. And to be honest, it feels like he, he's done that as an attempt to kind of uh, uh, increase their weight and it doesn't always come off. It doesn't feel as though he's writing so naturally about them uh, as he is about the guys. and. It was quite interesting, the idea that this sort of Renton character who's full of insight and a really smart guy is eventually dumped, given the elbow by a 15-year-old or whatever she is. Uh, but somehow or other, when we came to put the film together, it, again, it just it felt like it, it, it demanded to be just a film about the guys, I think. Mm. Strange, when you're writing a script, you think that you have to finish all these story arcs and you have to explain everything. And particularly, you know, Channel 4 and myself and Danny, we're very demanding on John about all those things. And then you realize when you see it, that those are all the things we cut, all the things we added. This whole sequence is another bit of really masterful cutting from Masahiro Harakibu. Put all this together and put on that, that Blondie track. Yeah, which we then got covered, yeah. covered by Sleeper, just to make it slightly more interesting. Uh, isn't cheaper the word you're looking for? <laughs> She pulls out um, a condom, throws in the bed because she's not a heroin addict, I guess. They didn't ever worry, I mean, from what we gathered from the guys we were speaking to, it, uh, AIDS and HIV was never a concern because you, you never imagined you'd live to an end, end of the week. So there was no concern about sharing needles and that kind of thing at all. But then she's from a very different world than, the, than Renton, I guess. Also, it was quite nice. We just wanted to have a condom in a movie. You don't often see people using condoms in movies and we decided that we quite like to. The Americans' notes on it were um, that they thought they wanted to cut some of the sex with Diane because they thought she was enjoying herself too much, which is an extraordinary thing to say, but they wanted some of that taken out. It is a very bizarre country when you think about, you know, what is going on in that country, you know, with guns and violence and all that kind of, you know, just the state the country's in, in its cities, and yet that kind of thing upsets them. I think penises upset them as well, <laughs> greatly. There's a slight dis discrepancy we just passed where she looks at you and Bremner's penis and says, let's see what we're missing. She says, not much. In fact, you see this enormous penis lying on you and Bremner's thigh, which we should have morphed out, I guess. Gamble at his very best. What a penetrating goal that was. I fell 
John Hodge. No, but there are a lot of references to football in the book, and, and indeed, um, while Renton's having sex, he says he can't, he can't avoid the old footballing mantra, here we go, here we go, running through his head. And then after he's had sex for the first time in ages, he compares himself to a striker, a goal scorer, who's uh, recently found his scoring touch after a long drought. So anyway, it, just, it seemed to be uh, you know, football being very important in the minds of these people. It seemed like we should have some football in the film. Uh, and then that goal by Archie Gemmell scored in the World Cup finals, not the final, unfortunately, but one of the earlier games in 1970 in Argentina and it came after two terrible embarrassing humiliating defeats and it was a kind of uh, a moment of ecstasy and betrayal and everything and uh, it seemed to sum up a lot of the emotions that Mark Renton would later feel so it was the ideal ideal goal to go through Mark Renton's head when he's having sex Andrew McDonald. When we first started to look at the book, all together we went away for this weekend to Edinburgh and we just sort of went through the book on the train because we travel on the train because of a lot of you know, obvious reasons to travel on the train, though we cut all the train scenes out. And um, we just said, what, you know, what were our favourite scenes because it was a way of starting because there is no natural narrative. Though, we, though we'd made that decision already to tell the story of Renton, really. And... Um, it was pretty easy to pick out your favourite scenes that had to go in the film. And there's a lot of things that you do recognise, like condoms that people have to go through and all those kind of things, and, and, and total embarrassment, like this, like this scene where Spud wakes up and he shat himself in the bed. And, you know, whatever, people will never admit it to you, but we've all been through certain things where you feel terrible, terrible humiliation, you know, and you try and cover up things. And... Um, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of writing because it actually it uses it to total comic effect as well. And people can enjoy it and also recognise something about themselves probably in their own lives. A book like that is crucifying because you, you don't want to drop anything. You know, you've got all these favourite bits and all this. And John, because he's a doctor, was very brutal and straightforward. I'd hate to get really bad news off him if I was ill because he'd just tell it you straight away. He said, we've got to... We've got to kind of, I think we should just do it through Renton. It's the principal voice of the novel. And um, he, he honed it down very, very quickly. And we went through the whole process of favourite bits, begging, pleading for favourite bits to be left in. Of course, he just callously ignored us all and <laughs> carried on. The spud scene. Mm -hmm. The spud shit scene. It gets the absolutely hugest laugh. I remember it yeah. at Cannes. It just about brought the house down and they all stood up and clapped and cheered. Danny Boyle. This is a traditional Scottish breakfast. You should see the look on the Americans' faces when they see that in Los Angeles with their salad and avocado for breakfast. <laughs> Everybody in America says, do you really eat those things for breakfast? And we really do. With HP sauce. It's the orange juice is a fraudulent detail in that. Yeah. No self-respecting skull would ever ingest vitamin C and be regarded as national heresy. This was a nightmare to shoot this scene, though, because Danny, as all directors, for some reason, I've never really understood, wanted to shoot it in one. And we spent, I think we did it three times before we got it right. And, of course, the editor and I convinced them just to shoot it in shots and let the editor cut it to get that shit to work. And the prop department had to keep remaking it 
That was some secret formula. <laughs> that was an over, overzealous art department, I think. You were quite happy to do a lot more last night. Yeah, and that's what's illegal. Do you know what they do to people like me inside? They cut your balls off and flush them down the fucking toilet. Yeah, we were a bit naughty with this girls' school here. Just quite a well-known private school in Glasgow. I didn't really tell them what it was about. I actually think they're quite proud of it now, though. This was our day in the country. Um, we felt that well, so much of transporting it takes place as we discuss it indoors or uh, in an urban environment. I thought it'd be quite interesting if these characters were plucked from their urban homeland and suddenly sort of dumped in the middle of uh, Scotland's so-called sort of uh, beautiful scenery, which is very nice, but which uh, is somewhere that they would not feel at home in. And then it did seem like a good platform from which uh, Renton could deliver his withering attack on uh, nationalism. They're from, obviously, they're from a working-class background, which, of course, the truth about her, and despite the romantic image of it, is, of course, the vast majority of people who are, uh, who are involved in it and uh, get destroyed by it, of course, come from quite poor backgrounds, if you like, from working-class urban backgrounds. Um, and we wanted the film to be, you know, we wanted them to look attractive despite the degradation they were involved in and we've been accused because of that of romanticizing heroin if you like but it's also a way of actually being incredibly positive about the characters you know and insisting on their worth and value and that you shouldn't um again kind of feel condescending towards them really i think there's a few things there's a i think the first thing about uh this romanticism about heroin I think it's caused because it is the big bad one. It's the worst one you can do. And, and society's view of it is such that it's, you do heroin and you're just an outcast and you're, you're a bad, despicable person. Whereas if, you know, it's like if I came into a bar one night and said, God, I did a great E last night. People go, all right. If I came and said, God, I shot some great smack last night, there'd be a very different reaction around the table. I don't know quite. And the other thing I think it might be related to is the fact that you inject it. You physically put it in your vein, in your blood, which is a very medical clinical thing and of course when you're shooting up heroin it becomes not a clinical medical thing at all around this time spud sick boy and i made a healthy informed democratic decision to get back on heroin as soon as possible took about 12 hours and i think it's all to do that that makes it even more dangerous and therefore dangerous things are kind of mysterious and, and attractive in a way um so i think it's to do with those it's a full-time business Whenever we were shooting anything to do with drugs or whenever there were drugs involved in a scene, we had a guy from the Carlton Athletic Club, Eamon Doherty, um, who, who was there as our drugs advisor. He gave us a cookery class. <laughs> cookery class with Eamon. It was very weird. He'd been off heroin for four years. And suddenly he had six actors, seven actors round a long table, each with their own little set of works. And uh, he stood at the end of the table and, and showed us how you would shoot, how, how you would cook up a shot. And, the whole process from start to finish. And what, imagined what it must have been like for him, being clean for four years and then standing there with all this stuff, teaching us how to do it. And I imagined what it might be like for someone who didn't know what we were up to walking in the room, <laughs> finding us there. But he was fantastic and very funny about it. That was one of the, the, the nice kind of relevances between the experience with them and the movie was, and the book, is that 
when they recount their experiences, which are some of the worst I've ever heard, you know, people got very low, but they make you laugh so much as they told you. I don't know why that is, the spirit. maybe it's because they're not there anymore, but there's this wonderful kind of life in their, in their history, and which is very amusing. Danny Boyle. There's this incredible sense of humour, which is as black as... It's, it's as unacceptable as, as the drug is, really, because it's actually... It's, it's the, the worst things get, the blacker the sense of humour gets, and you could feel in them that that's the way they kept their spirit alive somehow. No matter how bad things got, they would have this terrible sense of humour, and it refuses. It's, it's, it's a rejection of outsiders who aren't involved in it, who often don't understand it, and it's also a way of refusing pity. It's refusing to be seen like that, to be pitied. It's one of the reasons that the book is so assertive, considering the kind of turmoil and the, 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 the decay that it deals with. And yet it feels, which is what we wanted the film to feel like, it feels incredibly positive in some way. Pity has no place in this world at all, and so it's got really no place in the film either. The casting of the film was ludicrously easy, really, because you have this bunch of actors who are just basically the leading actors. You know, you've got Bobby Carlyle, you've got Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, and uh, Johnny Lee Miller, who was the only non-Scot that we cast because he did a wonderful Scottish accent and also because of that character's obsession with James Bond. Johnny Lee's grandfather is uh, the guy who played M in the original Bond films. So that was unescapable. You had to cast him then. And then we got this young guy, Kevin McKidd. This, we wanted somebody who looked like a, like a beach boy who you could take home to meet your mom. And yet and he's the last to join join in and the first to die, of course, in the way that life's cruel like that. We stole drugs, we stole prescriptions, or bought them, sold them, swapped them, forged them, photocopied them. It's amazing, really. John's, John Hodge, the screenwriter, is a doctor, and that scene where they steal the television off the old people is one of his things. He has all these stories, it's amazing, and perhaps it's why so many doctors end up as writers. John Hodge. Well, that, that scene of the, um, the television being stolen from the um, care of the elderly ward is based on uh, it's based on truth. I had a, fr a friend who was working in a hospital in Glasgow, uh, actually in a, quite a sort of rough part of Glasgow, um, I say any part of Glasgow, and uh, the television the people were walk just walking into the wards and taking the television sets. No poetic license there. This was our gesture towards uh, America towards the usual pattern of having an American in a British film to try and give it some supposed life elsewhere, was to uh, have this American in it. So we got a Scotsman to, to play the American and to be beaten up in a toilet on, on his um, touristy trip around Edinburgh. Andrew MacDonald. One of the other absolutely remarkable things is the costumes in the film, because the costumes are very stylized, they're very uh, fashionable, trendy. And you might notice now that Calvin Klein have um, basically ripped off the whole campaign here in their advertising, and I think Rachel Fleming, who did the costumes, did an you know, amazing job. Stylized again, you know, all these awards and things. She should be, she should definitely be, but they'll give it to some stupid costume drama with yeah, this right. gold, you know. Uh, we, it's much harder to make this look interesting than it is to make that. Yeah, we didn't want to uh, become fixed in any particular year because that distracts from what the film is really about. You know, it's about the people. As soon as it becomes like a historical movie, that just lets people kind of view it at some objective remove. And uh, uh, we just wanted it to, to be kind of 
timeless in its own way. This is where the film changes, and um, this was something that we insisted upon to everybody, and there were many, many people who felt this scene was just totally unacceptable. There was no way that you would be able to show this scene, but we took a reduced budget and insisted on keeping the scene, because up until now, you have this feeling of the film is flirting with the lifestyle, really in the way because it's it's being courageous enough to try and show it from their point of view and some of the enjoyment and the sheer vivacity of the life, you know, of the characters, the situations that they get involved in, the fun you're having. And then you, do, you can't do that, though, without this uh, element, which is obviously the scene with the baby. It's the huge turning point in the, in, in the book. And, and, of course, true to life, it, it isn't a turning point in the, in the usual sense of in the traditional comforting moral sense you know, that they decide to give up heroin at a moment like that, which, of course, is what you expect, is what you're hoping and giving to, to the film. Of course, Renton goes and cooks up because that's why he's on it in the first place anyway, and uh, he needs it more after this, really. And the only one who can give up heroin is actually Sick Boy after it, who does give up. But, of course, he doesn't give up and become a good Samaritan or try to save children throughout the world. He gives up and actually becomes this cynical manipulator of people. He decides not to get hurt ever again, but to hurt everybody else. We had to cut a lot of this material, but he, the two girls that he kisses in the nightclub, he leads them into a kind of route of prostitution linked to kind of drug use, and, um, and he becomes a kind of... As you see later in the film, he becomes a kind of businessman the kind of black market man on the drug world. And, of course, that's a huge part of the British economy at the moment, which is, you know, only touched on here. But, you know, those kind of deals and all that kind of world is, is a big part of our economy at the moment. ..explain a moment like this. Nor did I. Our only response was to keep on going and fuck everything. The two store detectives, they're chasing Renton and Spud. The front one is, is John Hodge, in fact, the screenwriter. And in fact, we, ran, we used a special bicycle, a four-wheeler bicycle, to get some of the running shots at the beginning. And we ran over Spud with it at one point. That was a terrible crisis, because I think at that point, you and Bremner thought, oh, God, I could, oh, we shouldn't really be doing this. It's too dangerous. But, of course, we carried on regardless, which you'd never be able to do in America, of course. Once you'd run over an American actor, that'd be it. I rolled over the car quite a lot. It was quite frightening because you couldn't see the car. What was quite exciting, I, I quite enjoyed doing stuff like that anyway. I didn't have much choice of Danny Barr, so... Somebody else pointed out that um, Renton, the character, is a Hibernian supporter whose colour is green. He would never wear purple training shoes. Which is true, probably. I know someone else uh, pointed out in relation to this scene that Renton incorrectly addresses the uh, sheriff as your honour. What well. should it be? I don't know. You're, I don't know you're worshipping on the internet. It's probably the same guy who pointed out that the volcano was in Glasgow. Yeah. Some smart arse Manhattanite. Some, yeah. some train spotter. <laughs> yeah, train spotters, God. The ultimate train spotters live in New York. The ultimate train spotter, I reckon, in the world. Well, there's two of them are Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino. So someone who obsessively collects bits of useless information is a train spotter. In Britain, uh, people, yeah, actually really do spot trains. But it is, it is, yeah, it's declining a bit. But no, it's so, all, the internet is the ultimate train spot think, word. Yeah. You would call it a nerd, I think, yeah. in America. So it's ironic, the use of the title. People obsessed by drugs and, you know, sick boys obsessed by Sean Connery. And it's a male thing. It's fucking obvious that that cunt was going to fuck some cunt. That's a line, that line that Bobby Carlyle says there. 
uh, it was fucking obvious that cunt was going to fuck some cunt. That was something I heard while I was standing outside a, a barber's, queuing to get into barber's in Edinburgh about 10 years ago. I just, uh, there was a group of guys that obviously just come down from the sheriff court where obviously one of them had, I gathered from the conversation that one of them had been um, convicted and sentenced and the other three had come to get haircuts to celebrate getting off and they were just standing, uh, ruminating on, on what had just passed and one of them said, really in relation to the sheriff, I oh, well, it was fucking obvious that cunt was going to fuck some cunt. And I just thought there and then, I've got to get that into a film someday. One of the interesting things about speaking to the guys from the Carlin Athletic Club was uh, the guilts that remain after they're clean. And um, one of the biggest ones, the one that kept recurring all the time, was the guilt they felt about what they'd done to their mothers. And you realise um, by scenes like this, when, when you know, you, I'm sitting between my parents and then there's another one in a cab later after I've OD'd and they get me from the hospital, that your parents are still there, they're still supporting you. And, You've screwed around with them so much and stolen from them and done all these terrible things to them, but still they're there for you. You see mothers and fathers in this in this film dealing with the, their son's heroin addiction in the same respect as, you know, my father maybe said to me, you should drink less when I was a kid, with the same thing, because you just have to deal with it, you know? It's a crisis and therefore your family pulls together. But it's an interesting thing. kind of shocks us slightly because of our, our own um, opinions about heroin and stuff. It's shocking to see people dealing with it. And Swanee became a kind of maternal character during the right from the start. Three sickly sweet doses of methadone a day instead of smack. But it's never enough. Now, I was actually on this roof this day, waiting for him to catch him. The producer, stunt coordinator. Because <laughs> Ewan's parents were there and I was terrified he was going to hurt himself. <laughs> One fucking hit to get us over this long, hard day. What's on the menu this evening, sir? Your Some of this sequence was cut because um, I think they're particularly concerned about people uh, learning how to inject, which is just seems ludicrous, really, in a way, considering the way we are, but that's the way things are, and uh, so they caught the moment where the actual, where the needle penetrated the flesh. Not, I think, for reasons of taste, just for reasons of actually not wishing to encourage people to inject themselves. One of the interesting things about doing the film, of course, is that you, one of the things you learn is that the phobia we all have about needling, penetrating skin, and all that thing we feel, you know, when you go and give blood and all that kind of thing. Once you become an addict, it's, it reverses, and you actually become addicted to the process of injection, you know? And in fact, they talked about, the guys from Carlton Athletic talked about, like, in the 80s when things were really bad and they couldn't, they couldn't get any heroin or couldn't get anything to inject at all, they would inject water sometimes for the minute kind of rush or thrill they got from the actual ceremony of cooking up and preparing and injecting. And it becomes a kind of fascination, a morbid fascination with your own skin, your own mortality, I suppose. The only reason it had to be a prosthetic arm then is because we wanted to um, take the blood back into the chamber and then push it through. The other injections that uh, Ewan had were, were just um, saline going into, just going straight into the vein. But because we wanted to take the blood back into the chamber and also, more importantly, because we wanted the stuff that was going into him to be that brown, smudgy-looking stuff. Because there's a shot in Pulp Fiction the same shot is in Pulp Fiction, and it's actually, they use uh, white heroin, which is a, you know, and the, again, the guys from Carlton Athletic are very funny about Pulp Fiction because they say, 
you know, China white like that. Edinburgh hasn't seen that for 15 years, you know, because what you get in Edinburgh now is you get what's called Pakistani shit, this brown stuff, really, this smudge, and that's what you get to inject. And that was why we deliberately kind of wanted to um, kind of contrast that, really, with that, you know, with the kind of stuff that they're using, the kind of crap that they're using. Well, I think the film reaches a kind of pivotal moment, I think, uh, with the death of the baby. I mean, up until then, it is kind of a trip. It's a chaotic sort of celebration of mayhem, which is what a lot of young people and young men go through. And it's, that mayhem is fueled by alcohol and by other drugs. Uh, and then, of course, it all turns very sour um when uh, you know baby dies of, of of neglect or caught death or whatever uh in the in the heroin squat uh and thereafter Renton becomes sort of increasingly isolated uh and he starts thinking about the future uh there's a great line from a song by the clash got in the, their song working for the clampdown and he just just sort of you grow up and you calm down and uh, i think that's probably what happens to to Renton over this sort of unspecified time period so in the end, of course, he ends up kind of bitterly choosing all the things he's sworn to reject. The big thing that we talked about um, as a style is that we were going to try and shoot a lot of the film from the floor. And the reason for that is that, um, I mean, it sounds a bit naff now, but at the time it sounded quite inspirational because it was, that was a place they were going to end up and we would just wait there for them, really, on the floor. We didn't want the film to objectify these people so that you stood back from them and hated them or, 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 or pitied them or anything like that. We wanted people to experience it firsthand with them. And there's, there's obviously a lot of it that isn't about drugs. Now, the nurse in this scene, a doctor rather, in this scene is played by my friend Judith, who is an intensive care nurse. So when she's shouting, wake up and wake up, she's very experienced at shouting that at people. The, the, the shot that causes this OD was a prosthetic arm. However, this wasn't this. She gave me this injection here. So that's a real injection there, but because she's a professional nurse, she covers the needle, so we didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't really need it. to do it anyway. <laughs> but that was an extraordinary experience, having to lie there unconscious, supposedly unconscious, knowing that she was going <laughs> to spike my arm and not being able to react like we would do, tense up and not being able to do that. But there came a point during this film where I was kind of wanted, I was dying to have an injection of some form anyway, because we'd been messing around with it for so long. I was like, go on, fucking stick it in me then. Yoon's dad there, James, he plays um, Yoon's dad in Emma. Bit of a different movie, train spotting fact. <laughs> yes, there'll be, there, in British films, you could do six degrees of Yoon McGregor quite easily. He notices all the Hibs, Hibernian football club memorabilia. They liked the movie. We did a testimonial, raised some money for one of their uh, players who became injured and couldn't play again. If this had been America, they would have sued us, of course. I don't feel the sickness yet, but it's in the post, that's for sure. It's funny uh, when you do something like losing weight for a film or gaining weight or something. It becomes quite uh, an interest in people. I don't know, I suppose because you're altering yourself physically to play a part. But it was just, uh, for me, it was simply uh, a necessity because um, of his physical state. He's a heroin addict and uh, doesn't look after himself. And visually, cinematically, it was nice. We were going to use lots of 
shadows and we talked about images of, you know, lots of skinny guys walking in their shirt tops at night. Andrew McDonald. Here's a good trade-spotting fact is that um, she was meant to sing Golden Years by David Bowie. Most of us have heard of that song, but Kelly, being 19, hadn't. She'd never even heard of it. She couldn't sing it, so that's why we changed it to uh, <laughs> Temptation by New Order. Danny really felt old that day. <laughs> you know, John and I met through his sister. I was making a short film and his sister was helping edit it. And um, John was working at uh, the Eastern Hospital. Eastern Hospital? Eastern General Hospital. Eastern General Hospital in Leith, as it happens, where the book is set, Train Spotting, at the time. And uh, he'd started writing Shallow Grave, and that's how we met. And we spent a year, 18 months, um, well, me telling him that it wasn't good enough and him rewriting it. And then we met David Alkin, who's been our great benefactor. He's the head of drama at Channel 4 here, who have been responsible in the UK for just about every film you've ever heard of from Britain, uh, Four Weddings, Crying Game, Howard's End, everything. And um, he really liked John's script. He said, who are you going to get to direct it? And we had no idea. And we went out and met every young director in town. And we ended up with Danny, who's a bit older. He's not that young, is he? Um, 53. 53, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I suppose the, he wanted to make the same type of films we all did. And uh, he wanted to direct the script. He didn't want to rewrite it. Most of the other directors wanted to rewrite it. And we got on pretty well with him. Especially after Shallow Grave was a success, it was it was pretty. We were pretty keen to keep the sort of winning team together, and you know, Train Spotting was made not just by the three of us, but really importantly by the cameraman Brian Tafano and the editor Masahiro Harakabu and the designer Cave Quinn, who had all worked on uh, Shallow Grave. Brian Tafano is um, is the senior player on the team. He. Um, he won a BAFTA the year I was born. Um, and Brian worked at the BBC in the glorious days of the BBC, supposedly, long before I had knew anything about it. And um, he worked with every director you've ever heard of for Britain. Because like Danny worked at the BBC, there were a lot of famous directors like Alan Parker and Ken Loach and Stephen Frears and uh, John McKenzie and all these people he worked with. And like Stephen Frears told me the other day that, uh, that Brian taught him how to shoot films. And um, Brian then went off to America with Frank Rodham and he came back to do a film, a BBC film that Danny did called Mr. Rose Virgins with Jonathan Price and Kerry Fox. And Masahiro, the editor, worked with Danny on Mr. Rose Virgins as well. And then Cave Quinn, the designer I worked with, on some films. I was working as a location manager before I started producing and I worked with her. She was an art director. Shallow Grave was the first film she designed. Shallow Grave was the first film, apart from Brian, none of us had produced, directed a 35 mil feature film before. But the team thing gives you so much trust in each other. And you know the weaknesses at the same time as the strengths. Danny Boyle. So this sequence is quite interesting from the point of view of uh, working in a, in a studio with a group of people who regard themselves as collaborators. Because what happened is that Cave Quinn, the uh, designer, she um, she built this set with this wallpaper on this. Well, there was this had this idea about the train wallpaper because the, the room should look like it was when he left it when he was 14, you know. And it's one of the things that parents do. And we said extend it, make it even bigger. 
And because you're working in that kind of group, you can do it. And so he built it even longer so that we could do this idea of the trains and this tunnel effect and that whole thing, which again used the 10 lens as a way of distorting the perspective and yet keeping it real somehow, which is used throughout the sequence. And it's, a, it's another wonderful thing about having a reduced budget in conception of the film, because the idea was to bring all the characters to Renton's bedroom, you know, rather than go round them all in all the different locations, you bring them all here in his fevered state as he goes through this kind of cold turkey, really. It was quite a... Physically quite a tough couple of days doing this stuff, but um, it was an interesting... The whole thing about um, playing a heroin addict and having to get to know about these things, these physical and mental sensations, I didn't know what it was like to shoot heroin. I didn't know what it was like to overdose on heroin. But uh, we had these people on hand who could describe it to the minutest detail. And it was an interesting process trying to turn out what you've heard about from other people's experience and what you've read and to make it somehow work as to recreate something you've no physical experience of. And of course, there's a lot of screaming and shouting, and as an actor, you kind of always like that kind of thing anyway. There's something you need to do. That's Rachel Fleming, the costume designer. Playing nurse Ratchet. So there's another person who we've got in there. And I missed a line in that. There was a really complex sequence. There was going to be a close-up of the needle going in my arm, and then it was going to track up to, to see my face. And then I was meant to go, ow, kind of ironic moment. And then it was going to track back down. She was going to put the chamber on, and the chamber would fill with blood. And um, I was watching the needle go in, and I, it was a really big, long needle. And after, I can't remember how many weeks we'd been shooting, but after that, I was quite ready for it, and I was looking at it going in my arm. I was just thinking, wow, look at that disappear in my arm. That's amazing. And completely forgot to say, oh, which fucked up all the cues and it couldn't pan up and da, da, da. You have this, this idea of Renton and, you know, the way he views the world around him, his subjective point of view of this craziness, this social world of warmth and alcohol and boozy, good time Saturday night, you know, in comparison to his own struggle. There's a great scene being cut from here, just for time purposes, which is the sort of antithesis of pulp fiction, of Ewan dancing with his mother to culture club, and all the, all the people in the background singing along. Tommy, it's Mark, man. John Hodge. This scene in the book where Mark Renton goes to visit his friend Tommy, who's uh, obviously has HIV, or may have AIDS, I'm not sure, uh, is, I think is one of the most poignant in the book. It's one which I was very keen to keep in the script in some form. Uh, it's because it's, you know, Renton goes and he's this kind of obviously wise individual in his own way. And Tommy's the unfortunate victim in a, in a way because he's been unlucky, drawn the short straw. Uh, and the, the, sort of the sense of... Uh, having gone down totally separate paths and their lives now diverging, having been friends, it's, it's very poignant. The scene there with Tommy, when Renton goes to visit him, um, it was, there was always something that John said right from the beginning, that there's a moment where they exchange the money, where something passes between them. And one of the advantages of working with people who you trust and working in a collaborative way is that you can trust moments like that. We never said what it was that passed between them, any of us. But um, Ewan and Kevin, the two actors in the scene, they also knew exactly what it was, in a way. But it's like what Kubrick says, you can't, it's not the ability to um, 
it's not the ability to be able to verbalise what things are sometimes. It's the, it's the ability just to experience them at that moment. And that was a very good... I've still no idea, in a way, what it is, because you can't verbalise it, but something does pass between them, which is a result of their fate, really, and where they are, and what they've been through together as lads, and then what they've come to. And uh, it's, one of the, it's, one of the, it's one of the pivotal moments of the film and was right from the very, very beginning. No bother. None at all. Not for me, anyway. Still, it's easy to be philosophical when it's some other poor cunt with shite for blood. It's the real turning point. He makes the decision. And, it, you know, that amazing uh, phrase in the book that we use in the voiceover there, shite for blood, yes. is one of the most accurate yes, descriptions of the disease I've heard. One of the interesting things about the, the Diane scene where she turns up and um, she comes to see him again <clears throat> and she asks about this guy called Ziggy Pop. It's, it's very cruel, of course, because, of course, when you're obsessed with pop culture, which is accelerating constantly and, you, and um, it's forever young and you're not, it's, of course, the cruelty of that, that uh, you're, you're out of date almost immediately. And Renton, <laughs> she comes in and Renton feels that at that moment where... Uh, you know, the constant process of new, of, new, uh, of the new kind of um, leaves you behind, leaves you trailing. Ziggy Pop is not dead. He toured last year. Tell me when to see him. The point is, you've got to find something new. She was right. I had to find something new. There was only one thing for it. This whole sequence, the London sequence, we wanted this to be... You know, like it is when you're first trip to London, when you first come down as a lad to London and you, you know, just the chaos, the wonderful kind of life of London, we wanted it to, we wanted to try and capture that. So we used this kind of um, house dance track on it and um, spent a couple of days just pottering around London, just looking at all sorts of crazy stuff, really, and uh, before you get to, uh, to establish Renton's new life in London as he tries to get away from the friends who eventually, of course, catch up with him. I mean, once again, we felt, you know, we wanted to disrupt the uh, line of the film, you know, it felt like, or certainly in terms of the script, it felt like we had been in a uh, Scottish urban environment for long enough. We wanted to have a, you know, a change of scene, something, uh, a, a, a new turning. That's the producer uh, with his secretary, um, <laughs> who's standing again, again because it's very cheap <laughs> and you can boss them around as much as you like. You don't have any problems with motivation or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, another money-saving uh, performance, I'm afraid. Wouldn't ever do it again. And that's my gorgeous assistant, Jill. The exterior was London, the interior Glasgow, and I wasn't going to pay some extra to do that. Profit, loss, margins, takeovers, lending, letting, subletting, subdividing, cheating, scamming, fragmenting, breaking away. He's got the keys to Telgarth Road! There was no such thing as society, and even if there was, I most certainly had nothing to do with it. And there's a quote, of course, from Margaret Thatcher in here, where he says, uh, there, was no, there is no such thing as society, which was what Margaret Thatcher famously said in about 1984 or something like that. Striking things about Irvin's book is his, his, his uh, grasp of... Uh, just, or the way he uses language, you know, just uh, so full of life and uh, imagery, you know, from uh, 
everyday speech. Some of them wanted to make it stronger. In the book, it is stronger. We wanted to make it. We didn't care about anywhere else. We particularly didn't care about America. That's the beauty of making a film with Channel 4. If you make a film with Americans, of course, you've got to care about America quite naturally because it's a big market. We, um, we just decided that we could try and make it so that people in England could understand it. Because if you just did it the way it is in the book, only people in Edinburgh, people in Glasgow wouldn't understand it, let alone London. And um, we had to, you know, you have to, you have to stay true. You have to have some kind of integrity, just a little bit. Armed robbery. Well, we're a replica. I mean, how the fuck can it be armed robbery with a fucking replica? Well, we were absolutely adamant that we wouldn't get involved in a big-budget American blockbuster. So when the script of Alien 4 came along, <laughs> we immediately agreed to be involved in it. Um, no, it was a really good script. That was the problem. I mean, Alien 1 and 2, especially Alien 1, is just such an amazing film. And this script is, unlike Alien 3, which was a big disappointment, is a very, very good script. And um, certainly there's a, there's a part of us that is not adverse to... Um, the more popular side of, of cinema and as entertainment. And this script that we did in America, A Life Less Ordinary, wasn't ready at that stage and we didn't know what to what we were gonna do. So we got we started flirting with Alien 4 and you learn a big lesson because as soon as you flirt, it's like you're married straight away and you've got three to three children on the way, you know? And you can't back out now. What are you doing? You know? Um, but suddenly, I don't know whether it was linked or not, but suddenly the, the, the script of, of A Life Less Ordinary took a huge leap forward. And Andrew and I, who were getting involved in Alien 4, realised we were out of our depth, really, um, with that kind of film. And, and, and uh, we were able to move all our resources, such as they are, to uh, A Life Less Ordinary. And we went and, and um, offered the script to you, and, <laughs> which you have to do these days. <laughs> Uh, you can't toy about with him anymore, I'm afraid. Um, and he tied around with me enough, <laughs> for my liking. This is when we really get into the contemporary music. This is Pulp, Mile End, about living in a squat. There's a train spotter question here. Why is Ewan McGregor reading Monty? You know, go yourself. I've seen this home a few days have been a law and I can't even walk the fucking streets. You go. You can't confuse people too much. You know, we always want to be somewhere in the middle, we say, between Peter Greenaway and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, there is a middle ground that you can in inherit that um, people want to go and see it. They actually want to spend their five quid on a Saturday night, but at the same time, they don't want to be just numbed to boredom and um, that's what we try to do with all the work we've done come on son come on son come on come on came in at 16 to 1 and with yeah. the winnings we went out to celebrate Renton sees this new world. He comes to London and gets a glimpse of how things are suddenly changing. You know, suddenly there's no more Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. It's something quite different. She's exploding. And uh, there wasn't enough time to deal with it because the film isn't about that. But we had a lot of fun filming this sequence of a kind of early warehouse rave or factory rave, which he discovers when he comes to, uh, when he comes to London. It's constantly soaking up things that are going on around him and his um, his fascination with seeing this energy and life, you know, is, uh, is, is riveting for him. 
Another transporting fact is, of course, is that the girl in the discotheque or the nightclub or the rave with Begbie is actually my assistant again. So the girl in the car here is a real transvestite. We shot this first and we didn't see eye to eye about certain things. This is a, the, the, the scene of, of Begbie and the, um, and the lady or the man in the car is quite interesting. We had to cut, again, you have to cut a lot of detail here. There was some wonderful detail from uh, Bobby Carlyle here about his relationship with this person, and uh, which is, appears to be you know, just a violent one at first, but actually, of course, he's... One of the things that Bobby develops is that he's uh, tremendously confused about his sexuality, really, Begbie and insists in the, in the scene with Renton that follows it that he's not like that at all, but actually he, 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 he did feel some stirrings. <laughs> and um, we had to cut it because, again, you have to sacrifice the characters other than Renton. You have to sacrifice some of their detail of their lives and of, and of their worlds and get on with the drive of the narrative, really. Since I last saw him, Sick Boy had reinvented himself as a pimp and a pusher and was here, he said, to mix business and pleasure, setting up contacts, as he constantly informed me, for the great skag deal that was one day going to make him rich. If you want to kind of change things, and this is especially true, Kelton Athletic told us, of if you, if you want to come off heroin, for instance, one of the things they say is that you have to dissociate yourself totally and coldly from everybody that you've known when you've been involved in that world because otherwise you will slip back into it, you know, because it's always there waiting for you, for, you know, the moments where you feel terrible, you can go and get some, or know a friend who can get you some. And this is obviously part of this, is that Renton tries to get away from them, tries to make a clean break, and they follow him to London. And he's gonna, it's, set, it's beginning to set up what he has to do in the end, which is something much more decisive, you know, uh, much more final that he has to do in order to break those ties. Runs a hotel. Ewan tells me these were the worst chips in the world. Because, of course, as it always happens in filming, they were late doing the scene. Somebody had run out and got them ages. They kept them in an oven. And they were cold and greasy. They're all right when they're hot and greasy, but cold and greasy chips are. I had to get rid of them. Sick boy didn't do his drug deal, and he didn't get rich. Instead, he and Begley just hung around my bedsit looking for things to steal. I decided to put them in the worst place in the world. The end of a film is always very difficult. And luckily, having our own screenwriter under lock and key, we can keep him rewriting it right up to the last moment, trying to finesse it to get it to work. And then once you've done that, you can just change it however, however they bloody want anyway, <laughs> can they? <laughs> bloody directors. I'll turn up at the premiere and see what it's like. Of course, they weren't paying any rent. So when my boss found two desperate suckers who would, Sick Boy and Begley were bound to feel threatened. Yeah. Lots of storage. All mod cons, 320 quid a week. And that was that. But by then, we had another reason to go back. Tommy. He says he's got an excuse now. He says he's got an excuse to go back to Scotland because of uh, Tommy's death. But also, they're down there with them anyway. So if, if he got away, he decided to move away to get away from Smack and to get away from all his mates who'd involve him in Smack while they're there anyway. And um, I guess there's no reason to stay, really. 
He's a very interesting character because he, he's neither a hero nor an anti-hero, really, because both those things, rebellion or heroism, you know, they've both been, they've both been used and gone through. And um, he's, he's much more, he's much more, he just sways with the influence. You know, whatever comes, comes, you know, and he just kind of rolls with it, whichever way it comes to him. And that makes him, I think that makes him a, a, a figure for, that's very recognisable in the 90s, you know, where people are going to put their faith anymore. There isn't really anywhere to put your faith. I really enjoy the scene in, in the book where the, well, not enjoy, I remember, remember the scene, the, there's this chapter called um, Memories of Matty, which is about the, the funeral of uh, one friend of Renton who dies of AIDS. In fact, it's slightly adapted for the funeral of Tommy, but then it's just, it just goes into the minds of all the characters and each characters, about seven of them, have a little reminiscence, one paragraph, and they're just fantastic. Each reminiscence uh, speaks volumes about the character, about the deceased, and about the time we live in. So it's a wonderful uh, half-hour film, potentially. It's, it's a wonderful three pages of prose, but it, it just wouldn't translate into this, this particular film. One of the things that we did cut, for instance, that used to be at the funeral, um, Spud and Sick Boy used to laugh a lot at the funeral, which we had in because... That was their reaction to pain and to hurt and grief, was they kind of rejected it, really. They couldn't be involved in that. And so they rejected it through this kind of boyish foolery, uh, laughing at the, you know, giggling at the funeral and things like that, which is what you do, I'm afraid. And then it's only afterwards that you see uh, in the pub afterwards where they sing, where Spud sings this terrible song, that you realise how much they are suffering because of the loss of their friend. It just seemed too too extreme, really, to, to do that in a funeral. So we reduced it in the funeral and left them just talking, just Renton and his mate talking about what had actually happened to Tommy and about the kitten and all that kind of stuff. Johnny Lee Miller didn't speak in uh, his own accent for the entire movie. When we were in Glasgow, he spoke in Scottish for every word. And then at the very end of the movie, I don't know, I guess the day we finished, he suddenly spoke in his accent again and I just laughed, like, because <laughs> I thought you'd taken a piss. Because he talks like that, Johnny. He's very like that. And he started speaking his own voice and he sounded like he was doing this incredible parody of some London wanker. So he tells me. He got drunk in a pub down by the docks last week where he met two Russian sailors. They're fucking carrying their stuff for sale, then and then, like. So... He wakes up next morning, realises what he's done, gets very fucking nervous. He wants rid of this, right? So All this stuff felt very weird to do because we were back in Swanee's flat, which suddenly felt really cold and unfriendly, which is, of course, what's happened to it. But also that Renton suddenly gone away and come back and he appears to be someone else. felt a bit uncomfortable for a while because I didn't, didn't quite re understand who he was at this point. And also he doesn't because his mates had... This scam would never have shocked him in the past, but now he seems to be being a bit moralistic about it or something. It's just our take on one idea, one idea, Renton story idea, though you could make five or six films out of it, just on the top of my head, and different ways. If you've seen the film, you've got to read the book. You know, especially this whole end bit, it's, you know, it's, it's very contrived, it is in the book. But it, we've contrived it a lot to make it work in terms of the narrative, to have a conclusion, have some kind of satisfaction. 
And Danny's great at that. That's why he wants to get everybody involved. That's why he wants Irvin to be in the film. Of course, we thought it was a fairly smart idea in case everybody slagged off the film. But Irvin wouldn't have cared a shit if he'd hated it. He would have said it was crap as well. Um, he just likes to be involved in everything and keeping John involved in constantly rewriting and and uh, coming to rehearsal and being part of that and giving him a part in the same same way he does with, with giving me that part, of making me do it, rather, or me begging him to let me do it. It's quite shocking in a way that he's having having come off heroin, he then tries it again, he then tests it again, because as Begbie uh, has, has noted, you know, he sick boy has given up now and he wouldn't trust Spud. And, and this is the one of the things that has to happen in these kind of... In these, uh, well, I say illicit, but they're all illicit, aren't they? But in these kind of homemade deals, somebody has to test it. Somebody has to bring somebody along who's going to test it. You know, there's no chemical lab you can turn to. Somebody has to say it's good or it's crap, you know? But again, one of the interesting things that Carlton Athletics said about it is that unlike the conventional picture of heroin, which is supposedly you touch it, you're hooked forever, and then you die, in fact, people have a often people have an on-off relationship with it. People, or people take months and months and months of use and non-use to suddenly become addicted to it and a, and a slave to it. And that's, that's uncomfortable because it doesn't fit the pattern of the adverts, you know, the government adverts, which use fear, really, because um, it's actually a much more complex issue and, and drug than that. And, and they're, just for, they're just for people to feel... They're just for old, older people, for parents, to make themselves feel better that they're doing something about the problem, you know? Um, you have to speak the truth as much as you can, and um, even if that makes you, it involves uncomfortable ideas sometimes, which I'm afraid the film is full of. You bring the kids. What? The Kurds, the last thing I told you was to mind the Kurds. Well, I've not bought them. This is Leftfield, who did the opening tra title track for uh, Shallow Grave, and this is the only piece of music in the film that was actually in some way composed to the images rather than Massa cutting the images to the music. And he hates all that type of music, which is so great as well. He just tells you it's, you know, it's a rip-off of Stravinsky or something. Everybody's in it. Keith Allen, of course, who was Hugo in Shallow Grave, and his brother, Kevin, who is now director. Writer-director. Writer-director with his first film, which we produced this summer, which is going to be at Sundance, Twin Ten. He'll be asking you to make a laser disc of his film. The actor playing the dealer here is uh, Keith Allen, who appeared in Shallow Grave as the victim, uh, again associated with drugs, <laughs> who ends up dead in a... And the idea, here, the idea here was that this was a prequel to uh, Shallow Grave, that the deal he makes here and uh, the money that he makes out of these drugs, he eventually takes to 
a flat in Edinburgh where he dies and gets chopped up by <laughs> Ewan McGregor again <laughs> and buried in a shallow grave. This scene again, the guy in the corner there is just picking up the drugs there. He's the tester. They have to bring somebody along to test it. So he shoots up in the other room and tells him, you know, tells the dealer um, whether it's good or bad stuff, really, what it's, what, it, what it's kind of worth. Obviously pretty roughly, but gives him the idea whether there's a scam being, a real scam being pulled here or not. You get these amazing actors and these great scripts and you think, you know, you hear them read the scene, you think, what are we going to do? You know, what's this, you know, there's this, and there's this fantasy that there's this magical process by which the director says, oh, no, darling, you play it like this and it all suddenly, you know, oh, you need more of this or anything like that. There's none of that, really, because what we set out to do with the rehearsal time was that just to... None of the actors really knew each other with one or two exceptions, but you wanted to create a sense that they'd known they'd been trapped together since primary school, really, or even before that, which they had. And one of the ways to do it, one of the great ways to do it is to, is to use physical rehearsals, and we played football. We actually made up a five, six-a-side team and played Carlton Athletic, who are sports fanatics. They've replaced this dependency on drugs by this fanatical physical fitness. And we played them a number of times, and it's an amazing way of bonding people together because it stops people worrying about individual scenes or anything like that, and they actually just bind together as a group of people. And it takes, it takes your eye off the, off the ball, uh, ironically. Um, and it's, 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 a very, it's a very good way. And we use that in Shallow Grave as well. We all got together and lived in a flat together for a week. Yeah, we usually end up with a suitcase of money, and there's a suitcase of money in the new film as well, ironically enough, although it doesn't play a part in the whole film in the way that it concludes both Shallow Grave and Trainspotting. Um, in the way things are played out against, I suppose that's, that's the influence of the lottery, if you like, or the prize, the grand prize, and the way that it might change things. Uh, yeah, a suitcase full of money is a pretty useful item if you're a screenwriter, uh, both uh, kind of metaphorically and literally. Um, but in terms of plot, it's a very expedient and uh, convenient thing to use just to motivate people. You know, great human motivations, aren't they? Money and uh, love. And uh, money is much easier just to show. A moment like that, it can touch you deep inside. But it doesn't last long. Not like £16,000. So what about you, Spud? Like any major investments on the horizon at all? Gonna buy yourself a wee island in the sun. <laughs> well, for four fucking grand. One pound, three couple of rocks and a fucking sewage outflow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I think the acting of this sequence as they celebrate this false moment or well no it's a true moment but it's going to be short-lived of togetherness and community i think is extraordinarily acted by them just a sense of lads in a pub drinking lots of pints and just larking around talking about as you do just talking about girls and just the irreverence and joy of it really i think is brilliantly acted and again, you don't have to do anything like that. You just give them the actors like that. You give them the script, and they just do it, you know. See, when I get back, the money's still here. Okay. Yeah, at the moment, your back's turned out the door. Yeah, I'll be right fucking after you. You'll never catch us, you flabby bastard. By the way, see when I get back. Halfway down the sewer, the money. Fucking kill me. I thought you might, Franco. I thought you might. Came for it. What? That was a moment where you don't didn't really understand what it was about. I didn't know why 
why would I ask Bud then? Why would he be saying, you know, trying to involve him in it? And I don't know, there weren't, didn't seem to be any answers. I mean, it happens quite a lot in this film, you know, just shoot it and that dangerous thing about not quite understanding every moment. And then, of course, when it goes together, it seems to make some kind of sense. Violence is, is something that, I mean, obviously, cinema is, is especially obsessed with at the moment, the, the use of violence. And what we've tried to do is that you have a terrible, terrible scene there where he glasses him in the face and it's horrible and then kicks him and it's, it's a revolting scene. But what we've tried to do, and we tried to do this in Shallow Grave as well, is that then you add this moment where he, Spud gets kind of almost trivially cut on his, on his hand by the knife. And you somehow, you try to make the pain, by making it smaller, you can make it more real somehow. And um, it somehow makes it more identifiable with and stops it moving into that territory which films can become so easily, where, where pain and violence is, is costless. You know, where there doesn't seem to be any cost, you know, it just happens. And like that character, you just forget about him. He's rolling about on the floor with his face destroyed forever. But you forget about him because the cinema moves on and you concentrate on your heroes. There's a moment in Shallow Grave where um, Ewan's knees are, are, are hurt. And again, it's something that people can identify with rather than shootings and kind of people being blown away Schwarzenegger style. Endings of films are difficult. Um, because you want to try and tie things up. Um, but certainly Renton uh, has reached a point where he wants to change his life. He's fed up with the way he's been living. Uh, and he realises that the most important change he can make in, you know, to change his life is to dump his friends, to leave them behind, which is a kind of cruel thing to do, but it is... Uh... So the money has two functions for him. You know, take the money because it's, you know, it's handy for him to have the cash, the start for his new life and everything, but also it, uh, it does you know, fit, completely cut him off. It means he cannot go back to Edinburgh or Leith because if he bumps into Begbie one night or Begbie hears he's around, he'll, he'll just, uh, he will kill him. It was very difficult to work out physically how to do that. We knew Renton had to leave his friends, but we had you know, him grabbing the bag at this moment here, jumping out of the window of the pub. We had him running down, we've been caught by the police because the police had been called by the barman. We had a much more sort of exciting, dramatic spur of the moment, him jumping onto a double-decker bus, you know, riding down the street in London. Um, I was very, very sure he should be running at the end. But of course it works fantastically as he's walking. We did it both ways. I was wrong, not for the first time. Our biggest problem was how to end the film, and we, we had a number of different endings, and this ending is actually the one that John wrote originally in the very, very first draft. It was, a, it was, almost, an, it was almost an anticlimactic ending, and we tried to actually, in the way that you do, we tried to actually um, make it more exciting. We had the police arriving at the pub, we had Renton being, uh, running away from the pub with them chasing him again to kind of echo the beginning of the film. And we just lost faith in all of them and went back, as you often, often do, to the writer's first instinct, you know, to when they're first imagining the film as they write it. And we went back to this, which... Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that we did because it's, uh, I think it's absolutely the right uh, thing to do for Renton's character. Because, as I said before, he is somebody that he kind of 
roles with things and things happened to him. One of the things that Ewan was concerned about when we were making the film is that he wasn't doing enough acting. Here was Bobby Carlyle doing this amazing stuff and Ewan Bremner doing all this stuff with Spud and, and Ewan was worried as Renton that he wasn't doing enough. But in a way, it's because the film is happening to him as much as he's making the film happen sometimes. And that's again, feels like often a very modern characteristic. It's not hero or anti-hero with active movement. It's actually something that you absorb as things happen to you. So the, the scene with Spud in the pub, he just rolls the idea out to Spud without even knowing he's doing it. He just suddenly says it, should we run away with it and just take it? And he almost doesn't know he said it, which is why Ewan was saying he didn't know what he was doing at that moment is because Renton doesn't either somehow. Because the danger is you always want to specify everything, you know, and say, this is the reason for that, this is because of this. But that's, but that's an, an, an art thing, you know, whereas life is often much more arbitrary and trivial than that. But, you know, we wanted to make something that would, I don't know, would reach through to an audience, perhaps a, a way which they could relate to. And uh, so I think you know, perhaps it's slightly, you know, stylized or, you know, those fantastical elements and so forth because we feel that's a better way of or a more successful way of getting at the the truth rather than opting for a kind of ultra-realistic approach which is equally false and contrived you know because people who go and make you know these um, a film on location in a housing estate they take in a huge lorry and a film crew and caterers and everything then they go away after six weeks so it's no closer to the real experience than this it wasn't a big deal just a minor betrayal or We'd outgrown each other, you know, that sort of thing. But let's face it, I ripped them off, my so-called mates. But Begbie, I couldn't give a shit about him. And sick boy, well, he'd have done the same to me if he'd only thought of it first. You know, he's, he lives for the moment in a way, Renton. He's, his, his intention, when he says, I'm going to never take heroin again, I'm going to clean up and everything, he means at the time, but part of him knows that, you know, tomorrow could change and he might just, he might just slide back in again. And that's when he says, you know, I'm going to choose conventional society. So if you regard me as a kind of, uh, as a piece of, you know, scum or something like that, then you better look out because I'm going to be washing my car on a Sunday morning next door to you. <laughs> I think Renton drifts about for a bit and then gets old, grows up and calms down. Gets a mortgage. We all do our own thing and we all basically want to make the same film. Um, that's the way it works between us. It's not like we all direct on set or we all write or, you know, we all uh, do the budget together, decide how much it's going to cost. We talk about all those things a lot, but ultimately, of course, when the, the actual on-the-floor stuff, Danny has the final say and, 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 and in that way. And you can never get away. I mean, I hate it when they say Danny Boyle's train spotting. You know, it's nobody else's but Urban Welsh's. This is, it never will be. Uh, it just drives me insane, that auteur thing, especially. Especially uh, about train spotting. That's why he gets the first credit, Urban Welsh. Yeah, that's an honor of Urban, really. I was very insistent upon that. Except, of course, everybody thinks the film's over. I thought that was a bit of a cop-out. Bremner getting the money, Spud getting the money at the end there. I thought that somehow sanitised Mark Renton a bit. There's so much detail in a novel that you can't hope to capture in a film. That you're not, especially, I mean, you need to make a kind of a film like Shortcuts, you know, three hours, just character-based, 
looking at all these different characters to try and reflect some of the book, the relationship between Spud and his mom, which he's just barely touched on. Um, there's a lot of stuff with Begbie later, which we had to cut. There's all the stuff of Sick Boy and the girls and the way he uses them as he gets involved in the kind of business side of things, which you just have to cut because you're just following Renton. Otherwise, you are involved in a three-hour film or you're involved in a kind of more, you know, the approach that Ken Loach would take to the film. And we, not saying anything against those approaches, I think he, he especially would make, could still make an amazing film out of what remains of the book if he was interested in that. But we just decided to take a much more, a much narrower approach, if you like, just looking at it through Renton's eyes as the way to try and make the... I mean, it's, it's easy to say now, but at the time it looked like it was going to be impossible to get an audience into the film because of the nature of what it was about and how uncompromising it was. Now it looks like a surefire thing, you know, and there's lots of things you could have left in, but at the time you have to make sacrifices, you know. I really uh, like working, uh, I like the sense of being a team. I really uh, like that. It seems to be important to Danny, Andrew and John. And, uh, it really appeals to me now too. It's quite a unique situation that doesn't happen all that very often in the movies, and um, there's quite a lot of us, in fact, in the team. If you like, there's you know, our cinematographer and our designer. And there's there's more than just the three or four of us, and uh, so it's it's very pleasant. You kind of pick up from where you left off. I think um, there's more of an understanding between me and the director in this case than usually is the case in other movies because we know each other better, I suppose. Um, but I was at the stage where I would have, I would have, I wanted to do Life Less Ordinary before I'd read it, and I've never, I've never felt like that before. Um, and it's going to bite hard when I, when I'm not in one of the movies. That's going to hurt. I'm sure it'll happen at some point. Uh, I don't know. And I also believe in them as filmmakers. I, I've, I, I, in a very true sense of, of uh, artistry and. Um, I believe in what they do, you know, the films that we've made, there's always a sense when we finish making them of, God, I wonder what this will be like. You're never quite sure. And I think that's quite nice. It's the kind of dangerous feeling of not, of not adhering to things that you know and of risking things on set and, um, and with the editing and everything. And it's a, it's a nice feeling to not know and then to, to see it finally go, oh, whew, there you go. That's what we were after. Never.